let's get ready to study God's Word. to one and all. Welcome to another episode of Rightly Divide the Word of Truth. This is Andrew S. Baker, and it's time to review another Sabbath School lesson. Please be sure to visit us at biblestudy.asbzone.com, where you can find a link to the current lesson study guide, additional Bible study resources, and all our previous episodes. Before we begin this study, Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for your mercy and goodness and love to us. We thank you for these lesson topics, and we ask you to help us as we go to review this lesson, that everything that is said and done will bring glory and honor to your name. Uh, Be with us as we speak. Be with those who listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, lesson 10. Just flying through these quarters. Lesson 10 is entitled, Husbands and Wives Together at the Cross. We're still in the book of Ephesians for this quarter. And our memory verse, which will be read from the King James Version of the Bible, is Ephesians 5, 27 through 25 through 27. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Okay, introduction says, in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, Paul builds on the idea of the submission of believers to each other. He then offers counsel to Christian wives and husbands, and he concludes with a distillation of the instruction to both. In this counsel, Bible students may hear the risen Christ addressing our relationships. We are positioned to do so when we understand Ephesians 5, verses 21 through chapter 6, verse 9, as Paul's way of actualizing the great theme of the letter, unity but now for the Christian household. While he offers a strong critique of the flawed social structures of the old humanity, he also celebrates the creation of a new humanity embedded within the wider humanity with its flawed social structures. From within these structures, believers demonstrate that a new power, the Holy Spirit, and a new ethic patterned on Christ have been unleashed, which point toward the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan for his people and the world. Okay. Sunday, counsel to Christian wives. Paul begins with a hinge passage, that's Ephesians 5.21, which connects the two groups of passages in Ephesians 5, in which he advocates for the church members to submit to each other. Believers are to do so out of reverence for Christ. The first of several times Paul will identify the relationship with Christ as the most important and defining one for believers. 
So they ask the question here about submitting to each other. What, what do we get from this? In order for unity to be maintained, we cannot have constant fights over supremacy. And what God is calling for his people to do is to be willing to defer to each other in the Lord. He speaks of that broadly as believers and then even within the family construct, he points out that this is the way that God would have us operate. Okay. Paul also invites Christian wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. That's a very important point, by the way, and we should be very happy that Paul was inspired to say it that way. In throughout history, and this lesson is going to get into it a little bit, but throughout history, women have often been treated as second-class citizens. And so when you say, um, wives submit to your husbands, if people are willing to misinterpret scripture, and trust me, we've had people willing to misinterpret scripture for the length and duration of the scriptures, then they'll interpret that as all women are subject to all men. Whereas Paul is like, no, 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 women submit to your own husband as unto the Lord, not just to men in general. Okay? And the term submit, of course, is a loaded one these days. Um, but Paul is pretty clear that the submission is primarily a spiritual one. Okay? as unto the Lord. It's got to be based on the character and principles of God. When Paul says that wives are to do so as to the Lord, does he mean that a wife is to submit to her husband as though he were Christ? Or instead, does he mean that Christ is the truest and highest focus of her submission? Um... I don't think that the verse means the second thing. I think that the Bible does teach the second thing. The Bible does teach that Christ is the highest, truest focus of each of our submission. Male, female, boy, girl, husband, wife. But this passage says that she should submit to the husband as though she was submitting to the Lord. Again, that doesn't mean independently of his behavior, right? The as unto the Lord means in the same way that she wouldn't fight with God, but it also means in the same way that God would be righteous. Both of those need to be tied together, especially for, for humanity's sake. Okay? The husband does not have carte blanche to do whatever he wants because the wife is constrained to obey him as without any question. That's not what the scripture says. That's not what the scripture teaches. That's not what that passage says. So you can't conclude that the man could say whatever and do whatever. Now, obviously in history, that's been done. That is how things have been done. But I don't think there's any argument that, his, that uh, the scriptures have been misused by a variety of persons over time for a variety of reasons. 
right? The scriptures have been abused. I don't think we should ever pretend that that has not happened. It has been abused. In fact, it's one of the reasons that people don't like religion. There are many people who are against religion, not because they want to be lawless and sinful, but because they've seen abuses by religion and would prefer not to be subject to systems that would behave that way. So we have to acknowledge that that's a real thing. It's a real, it's a real situation. That's why the lesson brings it up. In view of Ephesians 6-7, where slaves are asked to serve as to the Lord and not to men, and Colossians 3-18, where wives are asked to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, right? The latter view is to be preferred. Well, they the latter view is the two positions that they took, but I would argue that it is not the second position exactly. Because that's not what the wording says. Like, the reason Paul says it differently in this case is because he's actually covering additional ground. You could look at it as, oh, well, he said the similar thing twice, so they both mean the same thing. I wouldn't, I would not be inclined to, to argue that point. I think his statement about husband, uh, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, I think it's clear what he means because when you get later in the passage, he tells the men how they are to react to the wives. And so those two pieces balance each other out. You can see that he says, women, you need to behave in this fashion. Men, you need to behave in this fashion. It's a contract. Just because he's speaking to two parties, it's the same thing as, think about wedding vows, right? When you give the wedding vows, when the, the minister is asking each party to, to um, adhere to the wedding vows, imagine if everyone got irate when he was only halfway through. Imagine if when he said, do you honestly, do you, do you promise to love, cherish this, that? The imagine if, if when he was only finished with one side of it, everybody was like, hey, that's not right. That's unbalanced, right? Imagine if everyone fought against that. You need both pieces. The injunction of the one is tied to the injunction of the other. He's writing a letter, and the letter doesn't finish until he gets to the end of the piece. So if you were reading it, you wouldn't start to get irate before you'd finished reading the letter. So while I think that the Bible does teach that Christ is the truest and highest focus of her submission. That's not what this verse says. All right? The context of this verse extends into the instruction to the husband. Okay. In Ephesians 6, 7, where Paul tells the, the slaves that they are to serve as unto the Lord and not to men, he, he's saying... What he's saying there is, when you're doing your work, the person who's going to judge you, the, what you should keep foremost in your mind, is that you're not working for this person or that person. You're not working for this person. This person may be a mean person or whatever the case is. That's not who you're working for. You serve Christ, right? In fact, I would argue that if you're going to use that passage as proof, you make a stronger case for the first understanding of the supremacy of the husband, right? Because Paul is telling the slave in Ephesians 6, 7, don't worry about the immediate 
issue of who you're working for because you're really working for God. Okay? Which would be more akin to saying, it doesn't matter what your husband does, you have to do this. But thankfully, that's not how the passage is rendered. And so he counsels the wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. But he also enjoins the husband to do something. This is not an imbalanced relationship. It says, wives are themselves believers who must ultimately honor Christ over their husbands. Yes, that is true. Okay, I'm not here to argue that it is not. It is absolutely true. In both Colossians and Ephesians, Christ, and only Christ, is identified as the head of the church, which is his body. By analogy, the husband is the head of the wife, with the church's faithfulness to Christ serving as a model for the wife's loyalty to her husband. See? It's hard. It, like, they're, they're almost arguing two different things in paragraph one versus paragraph three. They're almost arguing against themselves. The model that the husband and wife have is the model that Christ represents to the church. So, just the way that Christ is head of the church, the husband is head of the wife, but he has to treat her right, just like Christ treats the church right. And the woman is supposed to listen to her husband in the same way that the church needs to listen to Christ. But obviously, the husband has to be Christ-like, or that creates additional complications that will need to be addressed. Right? The last sentence in paragraph 3 is very important. This verse, and frankly, every verse in Scripture pertaining to this topic, this verse should not be interpreted to allow any form of domestic abuse. Okay? There's a lot of nuance in the dynamic between husband and wife. But nowhere in the Bible is the husband given ultimate authority in every aspect of everything as it pertains to his wife. She is still a free moral agent and can make choices. So while the husband does have a lot of responsibility, biblically, he still can't rule with an iron fist. Like, let's, let's be plain. Okay? And if we modeled better behavior in that regard, we would find that there were less problems overall. We would, there would be more examples of this working out, and people wouldn't be so concerned with the word submit. Although I have to admit, in recent years, I've seen a lot more people, a lot more religious-minded people speaking on this topic positively. And I'm, I'm actually encouraged by it. So there's this pushback against the worldly view. And um, it's encouraging to see. Right? The Church as the Bride of Christ, Part 1. Now I'm going to say something interesting here it should be noted and we've done this in other podcasts that the actual bride of christ is the new jerusalem 
And in Galatians, Paul tells us that New Jerusalem is the mother of us all. The relationship between Christ and the church is often modeled on a groom-bride relationship. But the Bible does not teach that the church is actually the bride of Christ, just that Christ treats the church like his bride. If when We've done a study on it, so I'll link it. But the Bible teaches that the New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, and that Christ uses the marriage relationship throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, to represent the relationship between Christ and his church. Okay? But there are complications if you were to just take the church as being the bride of Christ, because at certain points the church is the mother of Christ, because if you look through the prophecies in Revelation 12, you'll see that the church gave birth to Christ. Right? The bride of Christ is the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem is the mother of us all. And that is his official bride. But the relationship that Christ has, the, the metaphor that is more apt for us most of the time, is the body of Christ, with Christ as its head. And that's why Paul can use both the, the wedding metaphor and the, the second metaphor that he uses, which is, no man ever hates his own body. Okay, let's look over here. Our passage in Ezekiel. So, Ezekiel, God talks about how he saw Jerusalem in her abominations, and she was polluted, and he took care of her, but then she later is going to go off and, uh, and commit adultery. But initially, in Ephesians, as we saw in our, our memory passage, Paul talks about Christ loving the church, giving himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, and present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy. Okay? Christ loves the church. And again, wherever we see Christ and the church represented in a marital metaphor, it is just that, a metaphor. Right? Because it's it's a metaphor that would be relatively, should be relatively easy for us to understand in terms of the love of a man for his spouse. Okay, so they list some things here. Christ loves the church. Christ gives himself. He bathes the bride, preparation of the bride. He speaks the word of promise. He prepares and adorns the bride. All right. Now, I'm not sure that those things were done by the bride in ancient times, by the, by the groom, sorry, in ancient times. But anyway, it's a metaphor, and it has its place. Tuesday, Church is the Bride, Part 2. 
part two. In, where are we, Colossians? What does Paul, how does Paul use elements of the ancient wedding in appealing to Christians in Corinth? Paul spoke about presenting them to Christ as a specific church. He says, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled eel through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which we have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. I do want to emphasize this because we do make a lot of mistakes about it in terms of the church as a bride metaphor. Think carefully here. Paul is telling the Corinthians, I love you guys. I love you guys. And I have labored over you pretty much as a father. Right? I've labored you as a father because I have espoused you to one husband. I have prepared you and, and taught you and educated you and gotten you ready so that you will be good wife material. Right? And I'm going to present you chaste, pure to Christ. And I'm afraid that you guys are naive and might get tricked and, and that would wreck everything. You'd be caught up. But I'm presenting you to Christ. Okay. Let's think about that carefully. Because again, this is a metaphor and it's an important metaphor. But it is just a metaphor. If Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church and he tells them that he is trying to set them on the path of righteousness so that they can be the bride of Christ. And mind you, he's speaking to a single church in this case, right? Because remember that the letters that they write, that the apostles wrote to the believers dealt with specific issues. They, they were broadly applicable because they often asked that, hey, I've sent you a letter and I've sent these other guys a letter. When you guys finish reading your own letter, switch and read the other person's letter. So there were there were challenges that were generic to Christians, which is why the Bible works for us today, even though it wasn't written to any of us directly. But if he is preparing each congregation to be a bride of Christ, that creates some awkwardness in terms of how many brides Christ is going to end up with. And that's why I need to emphasize, it's a metaphor, right? And I think, I think that's the last I'll say on that. We do have a whole study on it, once in True Wisdom and once in this podcast, and so I'll put it there. I encourage you to look at it, read it, and understand the passages doesn't take away from what Paul is trying to say here. He's trying to show how that relationship works and how much Christ cares about us, how much he went through on our behalf. Okay? 
When Paul portrays Christ presenting the church to himself, he alludes to this grand parade as seen in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, and to the moment of presentation. In doing so, he provides a moving portrait of Christ's return as a future wedding ceremony. And actually, the Bible teaches that the ceremony happens before Christ comes, right? It's important. Ceremony occurs before the return of Christ. Right? Because think about it. The supper is what happens after the ceremony is commenced. And the supper happens, the bride when when the cry, the bridegroom cometh, is made, it's because the ceremony has occurred. And the the other people are gonna come to the supper that's after the wedding. Which means that when Christ comes to pick us up, when we meet him, <laughs> the wedding has taken place. That's why it's New Jerusalem. Okay. What message should we take for ourselves with all this positive, happy, and hopeful imagery? We need to recognize that God, God loves us. God created us out of love. And when we fell away, he made a plan to redeem us. And Christ came and went through a lot for us and will continue in taking on humanity. Christ continues the sacrifice that he made in order to redeem us. So this, this uh, scenery, this imagery is really important to help us understand what it is that, that God wants to do for us and has done right? Has done what he desires for us. Okay. Wednesday, love your wife as you do yourself. What new argument does Paul use to encourage husbands to practice tender love toward their wives? Let's read Ephesians 5, 28 through 30. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Okay. So he says, you just as the church is... The body of Christ, you should think of your spouse as, as your body. Why would you damage your own body? Why would you hurt your own body? You should cherish it and nurture it. Right. Paul uses Christ as an example. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Just as Christ loves his body, men should love their body. Because remember, the two become one. And so, since a man and his spouse are one body, the husband should love his body. Returning to the example of Jesus, Paul argues that Christ is himself practicing tender self-care in cherishing believers who are his body. Model your behavior toward your wife, says Paul, on the way you treat yourself 
and ultimately on the way Christ treats you. Paul cites the example of Jesus to both wives and husbands. What can you learn from Jesus about loving those in your own family circle? Well, God is love, and Christ came to manifest that love to us in a very tangible way. And so Christ's love and the examples of that love, the manifestation of that love, cut across all different kinds of relationships, parent-child, friend church, marital, his examples. Now, obviously, he was not married while here on earth, but even in how he regarded marriage and how he operated at the wedding of Cana and possibly other weddings that are simply not recorded, how he operated the wedding of Cana, how he operated with his disciples, the tender regard he had for children, the way that he treated women. If you look at all of his interactions with women, the woman of the well, the woman at the well in Samaria, the Syrophoenician woman, Mary Magdalene. Like you see all of these different times where he interacted with women, Mary and Martha, you, and you understand, you get to understand that dynamic. You see how he operated with his disciples. You see how he operated with young children. You see how he operated with the scribes and Pharisees how he operated with, with Gentile believers, how he interacted with, with even Pilate at his crucifixion. You get to see Jesus in a lot of different um, scenarios, and you get to understand the ways in which he interacted with humanity, and you get examples for all of these things, either in his teaching or in his actual behavior. And for us, his recorded behavior. Thursday, the one flesh model of marriage. Study the creation narrative of Genesis 2, 15 to 25. What happens in the story before the statement concerning a husband and wife being one flesh? Okay, let's, let's go look at the story. So Adam is created, right? Verse 15, and the Lord God took the man, which he created a few verses earlier, and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. So he gives him some instructions. Okay. And he gives him these instructions. Don't touch that other tree. And then God makes the observation that it's not good for the man to be alone and says that he's going to make a help meet for him. Doesn't do it right away, though. And so he first creates the animals out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and the fowl and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon him, and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. So God is doing all this creation outside the garden and bringing people over to the garden, bringing people, things, everything. And Adam said, 
this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Obviously, he had to be instructed on how Eve came about because he wouldn't just know it. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Okay? So they ask, what happens in the story before the statement concerning the husband and wife being one flesh? Adam is alone, recognizes that all the other creatures are not alone. God puts him to sleep, takes a rib from him, creates a woman who is part of his body, And now he's joined back with his rib, right? God took the rib out, made a rest of a person around it, and now puts them back together. And so Adam is like, oh, I'm complete again. I'm complete again. She came out of me. I'm complete again, right? Therefore, because that happened with Adam, that's the path that will be taken. A man will leave his parents and cleave to his wife. He will leave the one family, join this new family, and they will be one. Okay, They will be united just like Adam was united back to his rib. Okay? A key to applying Paul's counsel to wives and husbands is to see his citation of Genesis 2.24 as the culmination of it. All right, so what they're getting at here is when we go through that passage in Ephesians, Paul starts with, hey, you guys need to submit one to another. He goes into counsel for women. He goes into counsel for men. And then he comes back to, this is how God set it up in the beginning. By divine design, marriage is intended to be a one-flesh relationship with sexual unity mirrored in emotional and spiritual unity and emotional and spiritual unity bringing meaning to the sexual relationship. Note that in choosing Genesis 2.24, Paul selects a statement about marriage made before the fall and applies it to the relationships between Christian husbands and wives. In our distinctly post-fall world, rampant exploitation of the sexual relationship between a man and a woman reveals how deeply entrenched in modern cultures is the idea that the sexual union represents subjugation of the woman. Paul argues that the sexual relationship, as reflected in Genesis, is not one of subjugation, but of union, does not symbolize or actualize the dominance of the male, but the union of husband and wife, so much so that they are one flesh. We may look to both Ephesians 5, 21 to 33 and Genesis 2, 24 then for an important countercultural and corrective theology of marriage and sexuality. Christ's love for his church is seen in the light of Christian marriage, and the marriage relationship is better understood in light of Christ's love for the church, his body. In what ways does Ephesians 5.33 serve as a concise summary of Paul's counsel? Uh, is it a concise summary? I just think it gets back 
to that point. I don't think it summarizes it. Yeah, I think it closes it out. I think that it gets back to that point. It helps to understand as he goes from how the wife should respect her husband, how the husband should love and cherish the wife, how the wife should treat how the husband should treat the wife as his own body, how Christ treats the church, and how a marriage union works. That that's the flow. That's the flow. I guess you could say it sums it up, but I like to think of it as all of that counsel is neatly packaged up. If married, how can you seek to more fully implement these principles in your marriage? How can you seek? I think the instructions are plain and they require both parties to to cooperate. Right? The instructions only work when both parties are in harmony with each other. In the same way that if the church doesn't listen to Christ, that's an awkward situation. It, and in fact, you could argue that the church is not really listening to Christ. There are many areas in which the church is, is out of alignment with the head of the church. As a result, our influence on this planet is not what it should be. And furthermore, the relationships that church members have is a direct reflection of the degree to which the church itself collectively is not in harmony with Christ, right? Were the church to be in harmony with Christ, the church members would be more in harmony with one another. It feeds on each other, those two principles. Because the church is the collective. So if church members are not doing the right thing, then obviously the collective is not going to be in a good place. At the same time, the collective is not appropriately educating the church members. And therefore, the church members are struggling and not having good examples to turn to. So it's it's an ugly cycle until we submit ourselves individually and as a collection. There is some commentary here. There's, there are two quotes from Adventist Home. The first quote is from page 118 in Adventist Home, and the second quote is from pages 115 and 116. Listen to what it says. Since the white consistently urges marriage partners to turn away from efforts to control the other. Do not try to compel each other to yield to your wishes. You cannot do this and retain each other's love. Be kind, patient, and forbearing, considerate, and courteous. Right? That's from Adventist Home, page 118. And it is true. You can't compel the other party. Whatever leverage you may have, whether it be emotional, whether it be economic, whether it be charismatic, whatever advantage you believe you hold in the relationship, male or female, you cannot compel your partner to do what you want, 
to yield to your wishes. You can't. If you do that, you undermine the relationship. And that's what Sister White said very clearly. You cannot do this and retain each other's love. Now, there's a second, the second quote, which is, comes a little earlier in the book. And by the way, the Adventist home is a compilation. So I say earlier, but not necessarily so. The question is often asked, shall a wife have no will of her own? The Bible plainly states that the husband is the head of the family. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. If this injunction ended here, we might say that the position of the wife is not an enviable one. Many husbands stop at the words, wives, submit yourselves. But we will read the conclusion of the same injunction, which is, as it is fit in the Lord. Here she's quoting from Colossians 3.18. God requires that the wife shall keep the fear and glory of God ever before her. Entire submission is to be made only to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has purchased her as his own child by the infinite price of his life. There is one who stands higher than the husband to the wife. It is her Redeemer, and her submission to her husband is to be rendered as God has directed, as it is fit in the Lord. Right? So she quotes that. And we also have to look at the fact that Christ is the head of the church. The man is the head of the woman. Christ is the head of the man. And I think that the Bible outlines it in that order on purpose. So that the last thing is the one you can't forget. Because it, it would have been easy to say, Christ is the head of the church. Right? Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. Then you're left with, the man is the head of the woman. But he's like, no, no, no. Christ is the head of the church. <laughs> All right? The man is the head of the woman. Christ is the head of the man. So if Christ, Christ is the boss's boss, if we're going to look at it that way, right? If we're going to line it up that way. Christ is the boss's boss. If the boss isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing... The boss's boss will take care of that. And we need to understand that all of these relationships as being discussed are in the Lord, not just arbitrary, not just in isolation, in the Lord. It has to be that way for each party. Let's briefly take care of these discussion questions. Imagine someone arguing that this passage, Ephesians 5, is an outmoded passage that no longer addresses Christian relationships, since it enforces a model of marriage focused on the authority and domination of the husband. How would you respond? The Bible doesn't speak of domination. The Bible is very clear. If you read the passage through entirely and don't get hung up on the word submit, the Bible is very clear that there needs to be Christian love, Christian forbearance. Because if you're going to get hung up on the word submit, then look at verse 20, which says that we have to submit one to another. If that's dominance, it's awkward. It's awkward to say in the one passage, in the one verse, everyone is submitting to everyone else, and then make that submission the same caliber and quality in the rest of the, of the chapter. It doesn't make sense. Um, but people do argue this. You don't have to imagine. There are plenty of people who argue against this these days. Number two, how might Paul's counsel in Ephesians have to offer, or rather, what might Paul's counsel in Ephesians have to offer to those who find themselves in challenging and difficult marriage relationships? There's still guidance in there. 
Is it touchier when the other party is not doing what they're supposed to do? Yes. Yes, it is. And you have to pray about that. I don't think it's fair to give blanket counsel on that. You have to pray about that because it is fit in the Lord means there are areas where you can just submit to the other person's will because it's a decision they've made and maybe it's not the best decision or whatever the case is. But you can't ever violate God's law and you can't do things that violate your conscience, even if you can't tie it to a specific Ten Commandment injunction, right? Every person is a free moral agent and God has set that as the highest thing. Everyone has a choice to make. And so if your choice is being constrained you have to evaluate that as as something that you need to deal with. We can't just let ego be the issue, but God has set clear bounds. And somebody can't be subjugating you or constraining you against your will. Okay? But it is possible to follow those injunctions even when you're dealing with someone who is not a Christian, does not have the same ideology, etc. It's possible. It's more challenging. But it is possible. Uh, let's look at number four. Dwell more on the theme of one flesh. How does this help us better understand the sanctity of marriage and why married couples must do everything possible to protect that sanctity? Yeah, one flesh. That union is the only union that happens. And now you've got one whole partnership. Nothing should come in between that. That's very important. And... Um, it's something that we probably don't put enough focus on. We focus on a lot of other aspects. We probably don't put enough focus on this. It would make understanding the seventh commandment a little easier, or it would add nuance to that, context to that, if we spoke about that. All right? So that's worth it. That's worth discussing in more detail. Let's go back to our memory verse. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and goodness and love to us. We thank you for your watch care and your protection over us. We thank you for the metaphors used here in these passages and the example, the manifestation of the love that Christ has for his people and for the sanctity of the marriage relation. We see how it was created in Eden and how God intends to perpetuate that type of relationship. Lord, give us wisdom and give us a desire to walk in harmony with your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. You can email us at biblequestions at asbzone.com. We look forward to hearing from you, whether you have questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns. Don't forget to check out the full description of this episode at biblestudy.asbzone.com 
to ensure that you can access the linked resources and any related podcast episodes. This podcast is available on all the major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. Please remember us in your prayers. Until we meet again next time, may God richly bless you as you prayerfully study and share His Holy Word.